When Tony left King County Jail for the prison at Monroe, his life improved in many ways. Like, after two years of using a t-shirt balled up under his head just to sleep, Tony really appreciated the small luxuries. Yeah, to finally get a pillow after two years. Yeah, I mean, that's, think about that. Imagine sleeping without a pillow for two years. All you can do is fold up some extra boxers or a t-shirt, you know, make a little ball or something to try to put under your ear, hold your head up a little bit. At Monroe, Tony had a semi-private room with cable TV, so he could finally watch his beloved Seahawks again. He could go outside to the yard, which had a huge running track with actual grass. And he could cook his own food, like microwaved burrito bowls, when he wanted a break from the cafeteria. Once you get all that going, and if you got phone calls and a music player, and, uh, and then you get a job, that's the other key thing, a good job, where you're staying busy every day. Tony worked in maintenance at an office in another part of the prison. His duties included painting and basic cleaning, like washing windows and vacuuming. The first time I went to see him, he told me that he had such freedom in that job that he could have escaped really easily just by walking out the door and off the property. But Tony just wanted to do his time and get out as soon as possible so he could get back to his son, Connor. Tony's concern about Connor really ate him up while he was behind bars. And even now, years later, talking about how he felt then makes him emotional. I'm calling, you know, at least a few times a week and getting updates. And every time I call, it's just, it makes me feel even, makes me feel even worse, you know, because it's always, it's always bad news. <laughs> you know, it's always, he's not doing good. He's still using and, and, you know, I'm worried he's going to overdose or something terrible is going to happen to my boy. And then... You know, here I am, now I'm clean, and I'm starting to get my mind back and starting to feel normal, and I can't do anything to help him. This is Hooked, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. I'm Josh Dean. out of control. I wasn't trying to find a job. I was just trying to fuck shit up. <laughs> I was just a little hellion. Part 8. The Pink Cloud. We mostly left Connor's story for a while there, but it turns out a lot happened to him since 2012, when he was convicted for that first botched robbery. Remember, while Tony was out running his own life off the rails, Connor was serving his time done in by DNA evidence and that exploding dye pack. But being locked up did have at least one positive outcome for Connor. It got him away from heroin. And by the time he got out, about a year later, he felt confident that the drug was in his rear view. Maybe a little too confident. I guess they call it like a, the pink cloud. It's just not even, not even in your mind at all. Like, so you're not, you know, careful of it. The pink cloud is a term some addicts use for the first stage of sobriety. You feel supremely happy almost euphoric with certainty that you're going to be okay, which turns out to be a dangerous mindset. With his dad living nearby and still heavily into his own addiction, Connor was vulnerable to temptation. Remember, this is before Tony got caught. And one day, Connor found his father's stash and just couldn't resist. I grabbed some, went to the bathroom, and took a couple hits, and next thing you know, I was grabbing all the time, and you know, it was all bad. 
Still, Connor tried to keep his life together as much as possible. He got a job framing houses and tried to show up for work. But increasingly, heroin came first. All your whole thoughts and every part of your day, you are late to everything because the dope man's late to everything, you know? And it just takes the soul from you, essentially. Like, you're the person that you are when you're getting high on heroin. This is not the person that you are. I did want to stop because I knew it wasn't good for me and I wasn't, I wasn't good. I mean, it was just so powerful. It was too powerful. I don't think I was not in the right mind. I was not going to be able to quit at that point. Addiction doesn't care about your heart, your intentions, or your willpower. It's an illness that affects people both physically and psychologically. And as it does, it found a way to hijack Connor's brain and dig deep pathways there. Tony was arrested in February 2014. After that, Connor really struggled on his own, wavering between the pull of his addiction and his desire to get straight. Then, out of the blue one day, he heard of an opportunity that could give him exactly the incentive he needed to stay clean. A real union job, working on elevators. I ran into a guy I went to high school with, and he was in the elevator union. He said, yeah, man, they're, they're accepting applications, you know, right now. I told him, I said, well, I'm not doing good right now. And he's like, man, this is, this is a good opportunity. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, this is. The most I ever made, I think, was 16 bucks an hour up to that point. And they were starting out at 28. So I was like, yeah, I need this. <laughs> It was a big, big jump. So Connor made a plan for himself. If I go to detox real quick, or after I go do this application, you know, boom, shooting into treatment, I can get this done, you know? Connor did just that. He went to detox, a program lasting anywhere from a few days to a couple of weeks, depending on the situation. There, professionals give you medication to ease your suffering, and in general, keep an eye on you. After detox, Connor checked himself into a 24-day inpatient treatment program so he could come out clean and chase this job with a clear head. So right when I got out of treatment, I had the test that I had to go take, so I was required to go take the test for the union. The test for the elevator union is notoriously hard, and even if you pass it and get the interview, it's no guarantee you'll get in. Connor took the exam. And uh, I got a letter in the mail like two weeks later saying that I had passed the tests, and uh, I'm, I have an interview on April 30th. 2015, which was like another two or three weeks out from when I got the letter. And I was like, sweet, I'm in. You know, this is my golden ticket out. You know, I'm going to get sober up for this. And, you know, get once I get this done, I'm good. Connor says he arranged with his girlfriend to drive him to the interview. The interview was at 9, 9.30. I woke up like 6 o'clock. All right, got to get ready. You know, we got to get down to Seattle for this interview. She said, wait, what? What are you talking about? For what? No, no, my car won't make it down there. Oh, I was like, well, you can just let me get the keys and I could try. <laughs> so I'm not going to not try to get to this interview. I got to get down there. This is, this is it. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is a huge, huge deal for me. So, yeah, but then she wouldn't do it. According to Connor, he and his girlfriend got into a huge fight and he missed the interview, which meant no union job. Connor had pinned so much hope on that job. Then I just basically said, fuck it after that. I just said, I had a whole different mindset after that. I just didn't give any fucks. And then my addiction got super bad. Connor's treatment efforts didn't pan out either. He started shooting up heroin every few hours. Then, meth too. So like a week after this interview uh, situation, I was just doing all kind of crazy shit. You know, I was just, I was committing crimes. I had like 10,000 bucks. I had my own car. I was selling heroin. I had guns. I was selling guns. 
this kid's out of control. <laughs> Basically, if I thought it could make money and it was illegal, I was doing it. For the next four months, Connor spiraled worse than ever before. He drifted between places, crashing at motels, casinos, sometimes trap houses. His description, not mine. I just didn't give any fucks at all about myself or my son or about anybody. It was fucked. Connor says now that things were so dark during this period that he could easily have ended up dead. What saved him? In a roundabout way, the cops. I was on an unrelated operation. We were buying some guns from some bad guys, trying to make a case on these people who were trafficking in stolen firearms. You might recognize that distinctive Arkansas accent from earlier episodes. It's Len Carver, the detective who helped arrest Tony and interrogate him. On September 3rd, 2015, Carver was working on an operation when he heard something over his radio. It was during the night. One of the officers rolled up on a car that was parked in the middle of the street. I was listening to it on the radio because it was part of the operation. That one of the, it said, they got this person slumped over behind the wheel of the car. He, he nodded off at a red light with his foot on the brake and had a stolen gun in his lap. And, um, and it was Connor. So did you hear the name and remember it? Like when... Yeah. I knew right away. This is, you know, you roll your eyes. that You think, eh, things don't change. Later, in a memo to the court, his attorney described the state Connor had been living in. Let me read a bit of it for you. 22 years old, homeless, strung out, living in a car filled with garbage, drugs, and firearms. Slumped over the steering wheel, heat on to stay warm, dead to the world. To feed his addiction, he let everything else go. He ignored the harm he caused himself and the people around him. He did not care about his family. He did not care about himself. He did not care if he lived or died. Connor was convicted on gun charges and sentenced to 36 months in federal prison, plus an added 36 months probation. It's a federal investigation, and he's a convicted felon with a firearm. So it was back to the cell block again. At the time, Tony was still in jail too, and he heard what had happened from Anne Marie. You might think Tony would be gutted by this moment. His son, Connor, arrested again, this time under even worse conditions. But honestly, Tony was thankful. He knew what a close call it had been. He gets found slumped over in the car, which means you're, he, he's just one step away from an overdose that could have killed him. You know, it means he shot, he injected too much heroin into his system that it just caused him to nod off. And when you do that much, then you're just, you're right on that, that fine line between life and death. absolute sense of relief. <laughs> I mean, I knew I knew right right there and then that, that I knew that my boy was going to be okay. <laughs> you know? I mean, I knew he was going to be okay because he's not going to overdose in, in prison. <laughs> and uh, I knew he'd get clean because that's <laughs> that's the best way to get clean. As shitty as it sounds, man, is to go to prison because, you know, a, a 30-day treatment program is not going to get you clean off of heroin. I mean, it doesn't work. It's not enough time. Connor's mom, Anne Marie, felt the same way. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? I loved when he was in jail at that point. Oh, I did. It's, it's sad to say, but I did. I, when he went to jail, I was like, thank God. 
So Connor basically leapfrogged his dad with stints behind bars. Tony went to prison north of Seattle. Then Connor was sent more than 200 miles south to a prison in Oregon. Tony was still serving his time when Connor got released. Once again, Connor set out to try and stay clean and support his young family. His son was one when he went to prison. Now he was three. So he'd also have to reconnect with the child who'd spent most of his life separated from his father. Connor looked forward to the release of his own dad, too. But he'd have to wait another year and a half for that happy day. Welcome back to the world, man. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) What a great place to be. (laughs) In November 2019, I called Tony on his new cell phone. Two weeks earlier, he got out of prison. He was a free man once again, after six years away. Oh, my God. I can't even believe it. Yeah, I mean, what does it feel like? It's, you know, it's just awesome. It's been, it's been amazing. Just, uh, really, I've just been hanging out with my son pretty much the whole time, uh, you know, for the two weeks I've been out. Financially, Tony had a bit of a cushion to land on, which is not often the case for people fresh out of prison. He still had his Boeing pension, so he cashed it out to get up to date on child support, buy his kids' cars, and rent a modest apartment in Linwood. By coincidence, it was just a 10-minute walk from the Fred Meyer store he'd robbed in February of 2014, Tony's second-to-last robbery. Wait, where are you? Are you in an apartment building? Or what do you yeah, I'm in an apartment building that is at the highest point in the city of Linwood. <laughs> so why I have shitty cell service here is beyond me. <laughs> the apartment had two bedrooms, one for him, one for Connor. Got a lot to do, man. I got a lot of a lot of things to sort out and figure out, you know, where we're going to go from here. But so far, so good, and I'm, I'm feeling uh, pretty optimistic about things. So, For the first time in a long time, both Tony and Connor were together, and they were clean. Tony liked to keep me up to date on his reentry into the world and on his new life with Connor. He seemed excited. Well, first and foremost, I have to focus on getting myself back on my feet before I can really help anybody else, you know. Um, And also, yeah, I definitely will not be around anybody that's using heroin. (laughs) So, you know, if uh, regardless of whether it's family or old friends, it's just I can't put myself in that situation. He was unequivocal on this. I mean, it's for me, that's a death sentence. And I know that if I go if I go back to that, it's it's uh, it's a wrap. Uh, I'm done. Everything's done. I I know already where I've been, man. It was the worst hell you can ever imagine, and I'm not uh, gonna put myself in a position to to go back down that path again. Still, opiates loomed in the back of his mind. While Tony was in prison, the opioid crisis had continued to rage on around the country, and he'd kept tabs on it by reading as much as he could. You know, while I was locked up, I read this stuff all the time. I read I read a lot of different books and. and I had some friends that were sending me articles and kind of keeping me up to date on what was going on with Purdue Pharma and all the lawsuits and things like that. So now that he was out, Tony had a chance to do something he'd been thinking about for a long time. He would sue Purdue Pharma. He searched around online and found a lawsuit to join. He wanted the company that had ruined his life to show some sign of repentance, at least, and to pay him something for the damages it had caused. But this wouldn't be an easy thing. Individuals tend to face an uphill battle in cases like this. There are big players who have more clout. Edward Niger, 
a lawyer representing many of Purdue's victims, explains. So the large players are governments, municipalities, you know, cities and states, large and small. Almost every state is a plaintiff. I think 48 states are plaintiffs. All the way down to really, really small municipalities. And they are suing for causes of action relating to public nuisance primarily and uh, false advertising type claims. And the public nuisance is now they need to clean up the mess caused by the opioid epidemic. But it's probably the most complicated litigation in the history of the United States. Still, tens of thousands of individuals like Tony have also filed claims, including Niger's clients. The victims that I represent are victims who have suffered a quantifiable damage directly linked to Purdue. So the victims I represent received a prescription for OxyContin, which either caused their addiction or contributed in a meaningful way to their addiction or caused damages to them in their addiction story. In September 2019, Purdue filed for bankruptcy in a move to protect itself from all these lawsuits. Whatever money resulted from these suits was to go primarily to the big players. But Niger believes individual victims are entitled to some compensation as well. If someone trips and falls on a sidewalk and they hurt themselves, it's very nice that the state wants money to fix the sidewalk. But the person who tripped and hurt themselves is still entitled to recovery. So from a legal, equitable, and moral basis, it is the individual victims who should get the money. Niger is convinced that even more of these individual victims would have come forward if not for the fact that addiction still carries so much social stigma. So many people still see addicts as being at fault in some way. They thought of themselves as the stereotypical addict, someone who has a weak character or a moral failing, which is not, I don't think any addict has a weak character or a moral failing, but that's still how they view themselves. They didn't realize that they are actually addicted to opioids because a whole bunch of rich people in a boardroom made a decision to turn them into addicts. And even someone who ended up in prison for crimes related to his opioid addiction, he should be considered a victim too. And as a result, should be eligible to receive some portion of any settlement. I can assure you that someone who committed bad acts as a result of being addicted to opioids that will not preclude them from recovery. In fact, if they had to go to jail, that is damages that they suffered as a result of Purdue. Tony wasn't sure what to expect, but he was hopeful. I mean, I know I'm not going to get made whole off of the damage that it did to, to my life and to my family, but um, I'm going to get my piece of whatever's available. Once Tony filed his claim, all he could do was wait. He fell into a new homebound routine. We all did around March of 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Tony actually lived just a half-hour drive from the nursing home that was one of the first U.S. hotspots, back when no one really knew how the virus spread, me included, and when we definitely couldn't fathom how long it would all last. I'd actually planned a trip to see him that March, then canceled and called instead. It's just like having no idea when it's going to be over is like, like you can't plan past tomorrow, really. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's tough for everyone, man. Hopefully we'll get past this here in the, in the next month or two. Obviously, it lasted longer than a month or two. So Tony spent most of the pandemic trying to be a one-man support system for Connor, getting him out the door in time for this new construction job. He leaves about uh, 5.20. So I get up at uh, 4.45 and make him breakfast and 
pack him a lunch and all that, all that good stuff, you know. Isn't he, isn't he old enough to be packing his own lunch, and making his own? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. He said that his his mom just told me the same damn thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, he is. But I mean, I don't know, man. It's just one of those things. I'm not even kidding you. Literally, like an hour ago, she's like, he's 27 <laughs> years old. He can make his own lunch. I'm like, well, uh, I suppose he could. <laughs> This was, for a time, Tony's big activity. These little bouts of being a dad gave him some purpose. After Connor went to work, he'd walk down to the store. I'll go down and pick up some things for, for dinner and whatever else we need. So, And then I'm home all day. I mean, what, I don't, there's nothing, nothing else really going on. The other thing about Tony being basically captive, stuck at home, just like me and everybody else, was that there was even more time to talk. We started speaking like three or four times a week. Despite the circumstances, he sounded almost hopeful, and I was hopeful for him. It was also fun to see the world through the eyes of someone who'd missed six years of civilization. Like, technology I took for granted was new to Tony. I, yeah, I've been taking this Uber, dude. This Uber is fun. I love Uber. I mean, I've been taking <laughs> Ubers all over the place. It's a little spendy, but it, what a slick little thing that is. Christ, they didn't have that when I got locked up. A little YouTube video you sent me. So YouTube's the way to go, man. Fuck all these 150-page <laughs> books. I've never even heard of Venmo until I got out of prison. So Ben's watching some shows on Netflix, The Ozark. Oh, it's, oh man, that's super good. Yeah, the third season just came out. The Blacklist is the other one we're really. No, this is cool though. I'm I'm kind of, I'm kind of looking forward to getting to, to using this. So. But as is the case for many offenders re-entering society, money was stressful, and he still didn't have a job. Yeah, we're there's some we're struggling with some financial stuff. I'm trying to work through. So. Oh shit. But we'll get there, man. Fuck, I'm just I'm a little stressed out. <laughs> You know, I mean, I've been out three months, and I, I think just the sitting around and stuff is, is wearing on me. I feel like I gotta get moving in a better direction. As the pandemic wore on, Connor's job site closed down, and their income dwindled down to a trickle. Tony tried to move forward in little ways. He started talking to a counselor about his anxiety and depression. I'm just stuck, man. Fuck this, this transition of getting back to putting together some sort of life after being gone that long has, has been difficult. So I started seeing a counselor and she's super awesome, man. <laughs> I, I see her again next week. So it's, it's a good how'd thing. You, I need it. How'd you find her? Uh, I just called and asked for help, man. <laughs> Pretty much <laughs> called my, uh, medical, you know, my insurance and, uh, said I needed to have someone to talk to. He also got a new primary care doctor. There was one hell of a medical history to catch him up on. Yeah, he was a bit he was a bit taken back, to say the least. Well, yeah, was he like, yeah, tell me about yourself? You're like, all right, pull up a chair. It's going to take a while. Yeah, well, I told him, listen, man, I, I know you're busy, so I could give you the 30-second version. And, uh, you know, you can Google my name if you want to read the rest of it. <laughs> I kind of wanted to give him a little bit of history about what I've been through. And, you know, I let him know that I'm a recovering heroin addict and that I can't ever have opioids or any of those types of drugs. The COVID pandemic made the opioid crisis even worse. Between April 2020 and April 2021, 
100,000 people died of overdose deaths, about a 30% jump from the pre-pandemic year. Tony managed to avoid returning to drugs, but his health was suffering in other ways. It began to feel like almost every time we talked, something was wrong. So you hurt yourself and you're not sure what happened? I have no idea. I don't know how this happened. And I just got this huge knot in my the back of my left shoulder about three days ago. It's about the size of a baseball. And yeah, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. The problems all started to blur together a bit. I mean, I've already been to the emergency room twice in the last month, so I'm, they're probably tired of seeing me there. What for? For my blood pressure. Did no, I, I didn't tell you I, about I, that. I've had this headache for like two weeks, and it would not go So away. they put me on this other medication. And then my feet start swelling up, and my ankle pain just, it just, it's, it's called edema. I think it's called edema on my left arm. Yeah. It's terrible, man. I can't sleep. I can't get comfortable. I bought muscle rub. I got a heating pad. It's, I don't know what the heck happened. You're the one person who can't take painkillers. No, I can't take nothing. I did have two shots of whiskey. I'm not going to lie. That right there should have been my first clue. But somehow, I didn't see it. I had to do something. This thing's killing me. I can't get comfortable, and it's, and it's pissing me off, and it's putting me in a bad damn mood. <laughs> then one day, Tony's voice was less irritated, more scared. His doctor had ordered a new battery of tests. Yeah, I, I, I ain't gonna lie. I, I don't have a good I don't have a good feeling about it. <laughs> he was clearly worried, which got me worried. I try to what? be a pretty positive guy, you know, so... It's, uh, you know, you can only control what you can control, and yeah. Tony was as shaken as I've ever heard him. He seemed truly afraid that he was going to get some terrible news, that he'd survived more than a decade of addiction and then six years of incarceration, only to get cancer right away. I honestly thought that's where things were heading. Finally, one day, he texted me to hop on a call. I guess it's good news and bad news. I had myself convinced they were going to tell me that I had cancer, and it doesn't sound like that's the the problem. Uh, Unfortunately, it sounds like the problem I'm having, I've created for myself, so (laughs) I can't fucking blame anybody else, so that kind of sucks. And basically, she just said, yeah, you're... um, your lymph nodes are swollen because your liver's fucked up and not it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And they think the primary cause of that is because I'm drinking too much. Yeah, I had no I had no idea. So like how much are you drinking in a day? Oh man. Really? You really want to ask that? <laughs> <laughs> like a whole bottle? Oh, God. Come on, Josh. You're getting a little personal. <laughs> oh, we're just now getting personal. <laughs> I mean, is a is a fifth a lot? I, I think so. Okay. Well, well. And honestly, yeah. I mean, I bet on some days I can drink a whole fifth of whiskey. After barely touching booze for a decade, Tony had started drinking again, a lot. And I found out that Tony wasn't doing it alone. He was drinking with Connor. And this new hobby of theirs escalated really quickly. So quickly that I totally missed it. Despite talking to Tony twice and often three or four times a week. Later, going through the tape from those months, 
I could hear the difference in Tony's voice very clearly. I mean, I don't know, man. It's just one of those things. Tony explained that they weren't drinking to get drunk, really. It was more something to do, a way to cope. With the COVID thing and just the lockdown and the, the struggle of trying to get back on my feet after getting out of prison, it's, it's uh, you know, it's depression and just struggling, man. And it's, it's you turn to alcohol just to take away all that, you know, just to soften things up and take your mind off everything. The doctor left an impression on Tony that this was serious. He was quite literally drinking himself to death, and it completely destroyed Connor's motivation to look for jobs. It's just gotten to the point that, like, we're like, we gotta, this is getting out of control. We gotta do something about this. Tony told me they were planning to quit completely. What did, uh, what, what, what Connor have to say about it? Oh, he's on board. <laughs> he's definitely on board. He's got to be, because he's been drinking too, so he's got to quit as well. Over the next few months, I witnessed a bit of what Tony and Connor must have gone through back when they were in active heroin addiction. How you could want to stop, but not really be able to get ahead of it. You don't don't think you have the willpower to just quit? Uh, Man, I've been trying. (laughs) And it's not, it's not, I don't think it's a willpower thing. It's a, it's a, um... It's a withdrawal situation. Every time I try to cut back, I start, I just, I can't sleep and I get anxiety and I get nausea and it's, it's, uh, I, I need some help to get there, you know. Is it, is the sickness different? Well, I mean, I would say heroin, the heroin sickness is way worse, but the alcohol detox is, is much more deadly. Like, alcohol detox can kill you, literally. This wasn't a thing they could or should do on their own. They needed real help. They decided to both go to detox where medical professionals would give them drugs to temper the effects of withdrawal. I kept talking to Tony throughout the year as he cycled in and out of detox. He'd go in motivated, then come out drowsy from all the meds he'd been pumped with. Then he'd start drinking again. What what were you guys drinking? Uh, recently we've been drinking vodka prior to going to this, the detox. Wasn't it whiskey before? Yeah, but we're, we're broke. Vodka's half the price. <laughs> this yo-yoing, the falls from the wagon, it's a thing Anne Marie tried not to think about when her ex-husband and son moved in together. She tried to be positive, to not worry about the situation and what might go wrong. On the one hand, like, I'm sure you like the idea that Connor has someone, does it also worry you at all? For some reason it didn't at first, because <laughs> I thought, you know what, Tony's excited to come out and, and everything, and Connor's, he was excited to have his dad here, and I'm like, oh, you know, they're not gonna wanna go back and do stupid, and, but <laughs> then recently, there's a little hiccup, so, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, the drinking. It's a fear that I, I just don't like to think about. <laughs> Any kind of addiction, you know, whether it be gambling or it just, it, it really kind of freaks me out. So, yeah. The drinking was threatening more than their health and financial stability. It was conspiring to separate them physically. Because Connor's parole officer found out and even floated that one of them might need to move out of the apartment. She found out he was drinking and, yeah, she's not happy about it. 
but she's, I mean, she's cool. She's, you know, I think, I feel like she's still in this corner. She's trying to help him. You know, she could have easily sent him back to prison for violating his parole, but she's trying to give him another chance. But she talked to Amory and told Amory she doesn't think that we should be living together because we're, what you know, we've both been str- struggling with drinking. For Tony, that was a hard no. And man, we're a team. We're sticking together. So nobody's going to come between that. You know, me and my son have been through a lot together, and we're uh, we're going to stick together. We're going to get through this together and uh, just keep on pushing. So, so do you think... Do you think you need him as much as he needs you? Like, would you? Yeah, I think we just, I just think we need each other, man. I mean, we've, uh, we've been through, through a lot. Next week on the ninth and final episode of Hooked, Tony focuses on the future and tries to make peace with the fallout of an American crisis that's destroyed so many lives. They're responsible for the deaths of about a half a million people in, in our country. And it's, it's just sad to see that uh, because they have so much money and influence that they're able to, to get away with it, you know? I mean, it just makes me so angry, you know, to see that, uh, that they're getting away with murder. Sounds like it's all part of your, uh, you're trying to get everything back on track. Yeah, one step at a time, man. It's a long track. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah, and you uh, took you, you took a lot you took a long detour off that track. Yes, I did. Hooked is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. The executive producers are Mark McAdam and me, Josh Dean. Our producer is Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Our story editor is Michelle Lands, and Sierra Franco is the associate producer. Fact checking on this episode by Will Peichel. Additional reporting and research by Callie Hitchcock. Original music by Mark McAdam and Doug Slaywin. Editorial support from Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers at Campside Media are Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and me, Josh Dean. If you're enjoying Hooked, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really does help other people find the show, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.